My fellow Americans, we have endured a week such as no nation should live through, a time of violence and tragedy. For a few minutes tonight, I want to talk about that tragedy, and I want to talk about the deeper questions that it raises for us all. The voice you just heard was Lyndon Baines Johnson in what the White House called an address to the nation regarding civil disorder on July 27, 1967. I'm still Anna Marie Cox. This is still, with friends like these, Converts Edition, and we are still covering Converts. We're just going to talk about changing a lot of minds at once through protest and disruption. Our guest will talk about how the images of police attacking nonviolent protesters helped elevate civil rights in the eyes of voters to the most important issue facing the nation and drove up the Democratic vote in 1964 by as much as two and a half points. And how later images of violence between protesters and law enforcement wound up pushing law and order ahead of civil rights in the eyes of the nation and wound up increasing the Republican vote in 1968 by as much as eight points. Omar Wasso is an assistant professor of political science at Princeton University. He also happens to be an old friend of mine from the dot-com boom. I met him when he was running Black Planet, a pioneering social networking site that he also co-founded. Omar, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I am very excited to talk to you because this is some amazing timing, your article coming out in the midst of, I'm just going to gesture towards the world outside the studio. Yeah. Do you want to summarize sort of what your research kind of looked at first? Sure. So I kind of, just to give a little bit of context for, you know, who I am and how I came to this research, I uh, grew up in New York at a time where I was like a child of the civil rights movement and uh, had this kind of puzzle that was animating uh, for me for years, which was how did we go from my parents' generation where the civil rights movement had been so successful to this moment uh, now where as a kid in New York, both crime and policing seemed out of control. Um, And that took me from being an entrepreneur to going back to graduate school and I started this research on a moment in the 1960s where we see uh, kind of the rise of law and order politics come into the fore of, of contemporary um, you know, presidential politics in particular. And that led me to a moment where I noticed there was this pattern of changes in public opinion around civil rights and around things like crime and policing um, seemed to move very closely to protest activity. And so I started researching protest activity and that really became kind of the heart of this this research. And some of the initial research I was able to show, well, protests are showing up in voting behavior and that, um, you know, I, I, I was finding a nonviolent, a county that was exposed to a lot of nonviolent protest activity was uh, likely to vote more liberally in presidential elections, um, but counties that were exposed to a lot of violent protest activity tended to vote more conservatively. And that was, a, a, you know, for me, a very compelling finding that we we're seeing these political consequences of protest. But I got pushed really hard by reviewers in the academic world on, well, what's the mechanism? Mm. And that led me, you know, I was sort of assuming, well, you know, almost nobody sees a protest, right? We, we don't observe it directly. What we do is have this uh, mediated version of it, right? We see it in the news or on TV. And 
Uh, and so I, I began to pull on this thread of, well, of course, protests are influencing media and media coverage, and then media coverage might be influencing public opinion, and, 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 and began to really dig into that. So the puzzle here really is not how do protests influence voting, but how does coverage of protests influence voting? Right. And so what I f- when I started to look at the kind of ways in which protests influence media, influence public opinion, changes politics, um, I collected 275,000 headlines <laughs> from I'm front page. I'm laughing because I saw that number and I'm just, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. It, this is all, this is all sort of, uh, uh, you know, it's like, it's like, how do you prove that protests are influencing the news? This was like, you know, part of the challenge I faced. Um, and what I could show was that a protest today uh, shows up as a headline, a front page headline tomorrow with a high degree of statistical uh, uh, likelihood. And even more interesting to me was that public opinion moved very closely with what the media covered. And so you could see as um, in the early period of the 1960s, as there was this wave of uh, civil disobedience, we saw uh protest activity getting covered a lot more in the news, and civil rights became not only um, something that was a headline again and again, but when asked, what is the most important problem in America? Uh, the country is 90% white in the 1960s, so white America says civil rights is the most important problem in America. Yeah, that's an incredible graph you have in your paper, as about public opinion on the most important problems. Uh, I think you know, Americans tend to think everything today is always as it was, right? And right. the the line for civil rights, <laughs> you know, trails around the bottom. And then all of a sudden, there's like a very steep climb in 1964, right? Right. Where suddenly it's the second most important issue. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's I, one of the things that's been a little bit striking to me in the kind of Twitter debates about what's going on with protest activities, I see a non-trivial number of people say nonviolence doesn't work. And I'm sort of taken aback, not only because without any statistics, you can look at an event like uh, the Montgomery bus boycott, where people walked for miles for 381 days to break the back of segregation and transportation. Um, But what I see in my data is that events like the March on Washington in 1963, um, you know, in addition to all sorts of other nonviolent civil disobedience, captured the attention of the nation. And there's a moment where civil rights is the most important uh, issue, according to the, the public, right? And within a year, the 1964 Civil Rights Act gets passed. Um, similarly, in 1965, People like Representative John Lewis are marching uh, on Bloody Sunday, as it's called, in Selma, that uh, they're subject to really uh, brutal repression by state and vigilantes and uh, by police and vigilantes. And that gets covered nationally, even internationally. And within five months, we get the Voting Rights Act. And so I think it's really important to emphasize that there is this uh, nonviolent tradition of civil disobedience. And to be clear, sometimes the object of really uh, br- brutal state violence, but, 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 but the nonviolent tactics were incredibly effective at moving public opinion and moving ultimately legislation and, in my evidence, voting too. As a member of the media, I just want to insert 
me. <laughs> well, the media. Because I feel like, no, yeah. I feel like it's really important, though, because it's not just the fact that the protests were nonviolent. It was the way that journalists covered these protests as nonviolent, right? Like, that, that's right. they framed all of these protests very specifically. Now, of course, they really were nonviolent, too. <laughs> I mean, it's important. They were telling the truth. Yeah. yeah. But it didn't have to get framed that way. That's right. And so I think this is, so let's step back for a second yeah. and think about like, wh- who were the media or what was the media in you know, the early 1960s? There's, this great, there's a great book called The Race Beat that is a history of the journalists, the early uh, predominantly white journalists who went to cover civil rights. And, and, and part of why that was such a big transformation was, and, and, and to be clear, in the, the reason the book is called The Race Beat is it wasn't even a civil rights, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we didn't have a name for it in that moment. And the media in that period was uh, there were sort of three kinds of media. There was a segregationist media in the South, a pro-Jim Crow media in the South. There was a um, sort of more neutral, not, not, not pro-Jim Crow, but, but also not hostile to Jim Crow, not taking up discrimination against African Americans as an important cause. I mean, the, the, the sort of the neutral media outside of the South basically did not care about black interests, did not cover African Americans in any significant way. And then there was the black press. And the black press was this engine of representation for African American interests. But the black press was talking to the black community. Mm -hmm. And what the civil rights movement understood was in order to really put pressure on to break the back of Jim Crow, they would need to draw in uh, a concern of national and international audiences, international, national, national, international actors who could put pressure on the South to change. And the way they did that was through uh, nonviolent tactics that could generate media attention and what they but they sort of slowly figured out and this is building on you know the tactics that people like Gandhi used and others who were advocates of civil disobedience was that nonviolence was good but that what the media wanted wasn't just you know uh, a, a protest right there's one quote i came across from a new york times reporter he said you know this 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 really large nonviolent protest is dull mm. uh, blood and guts are news Mm. Right. And so the hard reality for civil rights leaders was in order to really get media attention, they needed to have conflict. There needed to be drama. There needed to be good visuals. And so they very strategically picked locations like Selma, like Birmingham, to uh, because they had police chiefs with hair triggers for violence um, who would, when provoked, engage in these kinds of uh, spectacles of violence that would then be covered by national media. Mm. Um, the, the, the other key thing about the, you know, a nonviolent protest is dull issue is that there were lots of white moderates outside of the South, and for that matter, white liberals, who might have been, you know, sympathetic to black concerns, but could look at a nonviolent protest occurring peacefully and say, well, that's normal politics, right? There, there's a redress of grievances, and um, so we don't need to in- get involved. And so it was really necessary to have something that created a sense of crisis, and the media would cover these, these, these kind of these acts of violent repression in a way that the normal politics was, what didn't do. This is probably pretty important to emphasize, actually, because I think both you and I referred simply to nonviolent protests for a little while when we were talking about these things. But the mm-hmm. missing ingredient and uh, to making change, the way that that graph comes to look like it does 
isn't just with nonviolent protests. It is when there are images of police dogs, fire hoses, people being beat up. It is, there is, violence is almost like a necessary component. Violence upon protesters yeah, is a and necessary I think, I think, component. It's a tragic, it's, it's appalling, I want to add. <laughs> right. But your research yeah. suggests that's the case. Yeah, so, so let me totally agree with what you're saying and add one small detail. I think the key is, is it coming back to your earlier question, right? If we think like the media... You know, what is it the media wants? The media wants drama. The media wants something that uh, kind of, you know, they, they want to sell papers. Mm-hmm. They want to win Pulitzers. And so the, the interests of the media are not necessarily with violence, um, but they are with something dramatic. And mm-hmm. so the March on Washington is a peaceful, nonviolent protest, but it's so large, it becomes something that's um, in the early days of television broadcast around the world. Um, and there are other moments where nonviolence, just to kind of come to the present, uh, act up in their uh, activism. This is an HIV AIDS group fighting for research and recognition for people with AIDS. They did a stunt where they put a giant condom over uh, this uh, very homophobic senator's home, Jesse Helms, and that generated a lot of media coverage, right? And so it is possible to generate media coverage if you can produce a different kind of spectacle, an exceedingly large event, a uh, something very unexpected. Um, but in the South in the 1960s, the, the, the most readily available kind of drama to produce was uh, these, you know, a bull Connor seeking dogs on, on young people. And, and what's also, I think, really important about that kind of strategy is, and that kind of brings us to the present for a moment, is that seeing state violence, seeing vigilante violence against African-Americans is both compelling as uh, news, but it also encapsulates the entire issue in an image or in, you know, a short video clip. And that's, so you're trying to solve a bunch of problems simultaneously. One of them is just to get coverage. Well, violence will do that. But, 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 but you need, in addition, for the images to come across to be sympathetic and to help people kind of reduce a very complex issue to something that, that, that can be accessible to somebody who isn't following this, right? And fire hoses on young people sort of says, okay, well, I, <laughs> you have a, you have a sense of who the good guys and the bad guys are in that if you have an open heart. That's true. I And I don't want to derail the conversation, but there's a part of me that just feels it is shameful that that's what it takes for white America to pay attention. Because as you and I both know, there is systemic violence being enacted on people of color like daily, right? Right. But it takes something showy, something dramatic for people to think about it. For white people, I'm sorry, I'm going to be, should be very specific about this, right? Right. For white people to make the decision that this is something I should pay attention to. Yeah, that, that, I think that's right. And I think, I think that's, the, and, I, and part of the anger that fuels some of the more militant uh, action that comes later in the 1960s is a sense of our humanity should not be contingent on the whims of white moderates. 
right? Our humanity should stand on its own. We shouldn't have to perform these spectacles of abuse. And uh, it's a totally moral and justified in, in most uh, kind of moral codes that if you hit me, I can hit back. Self-defense is, is a legitimate response, right? And so it's, it's, it's an exceedingly difficult thing for the protesters to sustain this level of uh, being objects of violence. And you're exactly right. It, it, it sort of, uh, it's important not to absolve white America of their complicity in just kind of tolerating Jim Crow or thinking uh, the kind of second-class citizenship that persisted for decades and really centuries um, is, is, a, is an acceptable kind of uh, status quo. I think this is a good time for us to take a break and come back talking about the second wave of protests in the 1960s. For all our sakes, we need to avoid crowds any way we can right now. But what if you need to go to the post office? What if you need postage to send out letters and packages? Don't worry. Stamps.com is here to help. Stamps.com brings all of the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer in the safety and comfort of your own home, office, if you're going to an office, or anywhere else you are hunkering down right now. Whether you're a small business sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or you're just working from home and need to mail stuff, which is something that happened to me just the other day. My husband came to me and he said, sweetheart, that thing that you do with the stamps, I need to use it. And I was happy to help him. It was stamps.com, of course, that thing that I do with the stamps. Simply use any computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just leave it for your mail carrier, schedule a free package pickup, or drop it in a mailbox. No human contact required. It's that simple. And like I said, with Stamps.com, you get great discounts too. Five cents off of every first-class stamp and up to 62% off shipping rates. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, especially now, saving you time and money and keeping you safe in these crazy times. And right now, my listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale, which... I have used now several times in the past few weeks without any long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in friends. That's stamps.com, enter friends. Stay safe. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Ritual. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why. And that's why Ritual's founder is on a mission to reinvent the vitamin industry. Kat Scheider and her team of scientists at Ritual are making clinically tested a new normal. Not only have they obsessively researched each nutrient in their visionary women's multivitamin, carefully choosing forms that are absorbable by the body, but they've also tested their formula. They left out mystery additives, synthetic fillers, and shady extras that can be found in some other multivitamins. And I take Ritual, and you might consider it as well. If you've ever considered taking supplements, now would be the time. Have you, say, been staying inside a lot, not getting your vitamin D? Have you been eating a lot of bread and other non-nutrient-rich foods? Maybe you're a little stressed out. I cannot say that I haven't felt stressed, but knock on podcast, I have been healthy. And Ritual is making obsessively researched and clinically backed a new normal. They use vegan-certified, gluten-free, and allergen-free ingredients, and their sources are out there for the whole world to see because they believe you deserve to know what you're putting in your body and why. Daily changes can lead to big results, so start small today. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months. 
Try it out, satisfaction guaranteed. Go to ritual.com slash friends to start your ritual today. That's 10% off your first three months at ritual.com slash friends. With Friends Like These, it's brought to you by Nutrafol. Women do not talk about thinning hair, but nearly half of all women experience it by age 40. If you're one of them, you know it can feel scary and stressful, which only adds to the problem. Nutrafol is formulated with potent botanicals to help you grow your hair as strong as you are. And it's physician formulated to be 100% drug-free. They use natural, clinically effective botanicals for better hair growth through whole body health. On top of thicker, stronger hair without lasers or chemicals, Nutrafol's ingredients may help you get a handle on better sleep, stress, skin, nails, and libido. Visit Nutrafol.com to take their hair wellness quiz for customized product recommendations that put the power to grow thicker, stronger hair back in your hands. When you subscribe, you'll receive monthly deliveries so you never miss a dose. Shipping is free and you can pause or cancel anytime. And even if you aren't experiencing thinning hair, Nutrafol can help you grow thicker, stronger hair. You can grow thicker, stronger, healthier hair and show support for our show by going to Nutrafol.com and using promo code FRIENDS to get 20% off. This is the best offer available anywhere. You will get free shipping and again, 20% off at Nutrafol.com promo code FRIENDS best offer anywhere in com promo code friends for hair as strong as you are omar's paper is pretty dense and we're covering the very top lines in this conversation so i wanted to pop in and bring up a few points that we don't quite get to before we pick the conversation back up first on the word violence While I think violence against property is a very different moral category than violence against people, and I know Omar agrees with me, his data does not make that distinction, probably because most media coverage doesn't make that distinction either. Second, Omar's data does show that public opinion moved away from the support of civil rights and towards a desire for social control whenever protesters engaged in so-called violent protest, whether or not it was instigated by law enforcement. Third, some context. The summer of 1967 is often referred to as America's long, hot summer. And it was much hotter than I realized before I read Omar's paper. There were over 160 incidents of protest with major uprisings occurring in Atlanta, Boston, Cincinnati, Buffalo, Tampa, Birmingham, Chicago, New York City, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Rochester, Plainfield, and Toledo, and then maybe the one you've heard about, Detroit. Omar mentioned that he found over 3,000 accounts of arson. 88 people died. This unrest was extremely frightening to white Americans. One poll asked whether the unrest was due to, and I am quoting here, lawless hoodlums, or a reaction to racial discrimination. 65% of Americans went with hooligans, as opposed to the 35% who saw them as a reaction to racial discrimination. LBJ was working against the tide when he pleaded with Americans to address the systemic oppression at the heart of these problems. We pick up our discussion talking about this part of Omar's research. So... Let's move into the sort of second wave of protests in the 1960s, around 1967, America's long, hot summer, I believe it was called. 
uh, I'm looking at your little chart. We'll put this chart in the show notes. And I shouldn't say your little chart. I'm looking at this very interesting (laughs) figure about public opinion on the most important problems. And we do have this very heartwarming little this blip where civil rights becomes the most important thing right yeah. of 1964. And then there's sort of a precipitous drop-off. Yeah. Vietnam is happening, so foreign affairs right. goes up. And then <laughs> social control starts right. to emerge. Yeah. And so, so this is – my wife and I were talking about this. I was in – uh, attending my uh, uh, cousin's wedding and kind of playing with these data between you know events. Um, this Nerd. is this is yeah yeah. This is more than a dozen years ago, and um, I was sort of interested in trying to see this is this. I mean, one of the things that people have observed about violent protest activity, you know, often called riots, is that it's very episodic, right? And so, why were there long hot summers? Well, there was this spike in. You know, violent protest activity in the summer, um, and then it kind of trails off. And then there's a spike in the next summer. And in when I was looking at this public opinion data, it you know we we sort of te- generally think of public opinion data as being noisy. And so I kind of looked at public opinion bouncing around a lot in the '60s on issues of crime and riots, all all lumped under this umbrella of social control. Um, and I just thought, okay, well that's noisy data. But when I overlaid the public opinion data and the protest data, I was like, oh wait, no no no, it's not noisy public opinion data. It's seasonal. The public opinion people's concern for uh, you know crime and riots is going up in the summer and down in the winter, and up in the summer and down in the winter and you know if you're there are all sorts of theories about the rise of a taste for law and order politics the rise in the taste for uh, these kind of social control uh, policies um, but if your poli- if your if your theory is something like white supremacy which is like almost you know racism is certainly a core factor here but but it doesn't make sense that racism is seasonal, right? People's racism isn't going down in the winter in, in any sort of typical model, right? Or if your story about the kind of concern about um, uh, the rise of social control is like kind of the prison industrial complex, again, that doesn't explain this kind of ebb and flow of public opinion. And what did uh, line up very powerfully to my eye was as pro- as violent protest activity went up, concern about crime and riots went up. And, and as it dropped off, because you know people aren't gathering outside in the winter, we see concern about crime and riots go down. And, and, and that was sort of the, the, the seed that, that, that led to this whole paper, which is that we actually see, um, going back to the first question you asked me, right, activity on the ground is, is absolutely moving public opinion. So protester tactics... It's fu- it, to me, it's almost funny to call them tactics, by the way, because these events in 67 seem less like, you know, they were less organized. They were uprisings more than yeah. they were protests. But the actions on the ground change. You can say that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's right. Um, and in, in the way I think about this, everyone out on the street is an activist who has agency. And they are making choices about whether they're going to, um, you know, smash a window or not. They are making choices about whether they're going to, you know, block traffic or not, right? And I want to, I want to, I want to begin with an assumption that activists are, uh, you know, engaged political actors with agency, and and then begin to say, well, how are they, you know. They are making choices, and the choices they make then have these, you know, in, in some ways the way I think about it is like they're. Uh, trying to send a message to the world 
And that message then gets amplified by the media and the actions on the ground really tell a story that then is, is, is going to be the thing that the media picks up. And so if we think about individual activists, I think, you know, a kind of weighing what do they want to do at the margins, any activist, any movement can make choices about are we going to engage in a kind of violent insurgency? Are we going to engage in um, uh, a different kind of nonviolent civil disobedience? And that's that's the kind of core framework. And I think it's also important to appreciate that in this moment, we're seeing the rise of a uh, what's sometimes called like a radical flank. But the, the Black Power Movement, the Panthers, other more militant organizations are saying enough of this um, turn the other cheek, right? It, 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 violence and self-defense is legitimate. Again, almost any moral code would agree with that. Um, and we are no longer, as you noted earlier, kind of organizing our movement around trying to cater to the you know, very particular biases of white moderates. Um, or even white liberals. Um, and so that more militant wing is, I think, helping to create a context in which violent resistance is seen as a really legitimate part of the repertoire by which black people advance their interests. So, so there's both a kind of um, set of ideas in circulation and a set of actions on the ground. And you are absolutely right that the kind of uh, uprisings of the latter period are less organized, but but I still want to kind of hold to this idea that activists have agency and they are making choices about how to escalate. Um, and what I find is that as protesters become, um, as, as begin to use more uh, violence in their tactics, we see a shift in how the media covers it. So in the same way that uh, a protest today predicted a headline uh, around civil rights in the earlier period, that nonviolent protest got civil rights. In the later period, a protest that escalates to violence, protester-initiated violence, produce, produces a, a headline, a front-page headline that mentions riots um, and a few other related terms. And so, and then what we see is again that kind of up and down in public opinion. And so the 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 the, 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 the and I think you're right to keep emphasizing the media um, for kind of simplicity in the paper. I, I I put protesters as the the kind of key agent of change here, but um, but it, it's absolutely true that the media can make choices about how they contextualize these things. But but in the story in the paper, protesters engage in one action or another that dramatically changes how these events get represented in the media, and that in turn changes how uh, the public makes sense of whether this is a fight against injustice or whether this is crime. Let us, let us land fully in today. <laughs> <laughs> because I have been, um, you know, I, I live in Minneapolis and I have grieved a fair amount. But also, almost every day, I have felt something that is almost like hope. Because mm -hmm. I have seen over and over my white friends and family use a framing about all of what is happening as rights. They know yeah. what is happening on the streets that includes looting, that includes some violence against property. Yeah. yeah. But there is a recognition that is mostly peaceful. Right. And, and the rhetoric has changed dramatically. I mean, it is crazy to me. I was coming back from the grocery store yesterday and I live near Target Field and I literally slammed on my brakes because the Jumbotron at Target Field is blank except for hashtag Black Lives Matter. Wow. It was not that long ago that when I put a Black Lives Matter pen on my backpack, 
I had friends yeah. ask me if I really wanted to do that because right. I might be provoking right. strangers. Yeah. And, and I will say that I think what has happened, tell me, you're the expert. What I suspect is going on here is that the, how long Black Lives Matter is, um, I want to say decade, but maybe it hasn't even been quite a decade that they've been. It's about seven years, six seven or seven years, years right? yeah. What I think has happened is that the incremental, you know, um, street taking and peaceful protests of Black Lives Matter have given a context to the uprisings that allows white people to see them somewhat differently than they might have seen the uprisings in 67. Yeah. That, yeah. That's my theory. It's, it's a good one. And it's a good one. I think there are probably three or four trends moving together that, that, that help to produce what you're observing, right? So, so um, one is just a kind of a technical trend, which is that video cameras in everybody's yes, pocket yes. means that we are documenting acts of state violence and police killing in a way that was not possible in the 60s and or at least without the media there with you know uh, camera crews it was not possible to document and so you know whether it's like Walter Scott being shot in the back or uh, this uh, you know Ahmad Arbery or now um, George Floyd I think for people who have an open mind looking at those videos that is to say, for white people who have an open mind, <laughs> it, 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 it kind of uh, it forces them to update their understanding of what black people have been talking about for decades mm-hmm. when they say police brutality is a real issue. And what I've heard from uh, white peers is a sense of, I, you know, I was sympathetic to this concern. I had no idea how bad it was. Right. And so I think the technology plays a very powerful role in allowing one individual to connect in some ways with another and have a sense of, oh, that was, for my sense of what a just world looks like, unacceptable and has to change. And it's been cumulative. Um, Each of these additional videos does a little bit of work to kind of move the needle on allowing white people for a blink to walk in black people's shoes and have a brief sense of what that might be like and have some empathy for that experience. On top of that comes the Black Lives Matter movement um, and the kind of broader coalition, the movement for black lives that has done remarkable work of trying to, when there are these incidents, to mobilize and not let them be just, you know, a hashtag and a meme for 48 hours, but rather something that becomes a, a source of organizing and a force for change in things like use of force policies in police forces, right? So there's a group campaign zero that's really tried to sort of say, we need, you know, this is not just about an individual cop, but that there are systems that, and policies that really make a difference in the quality of life for, you know, all citizens, but especially black citizens. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and at the same time, and the sort of at the more aggregate level, we've seen evidence of uh, a greater concern for racial equality among whites, particularly among white liberals. 
And I think the, the, the cell phone footage, the protests uh, championed by organizers with Black Lives Matter, um, and uh, you know, other kinds of awareness have fueled this shift in, in white public opinion. And I'm still, you know, a majority of whites still support Donald Trump, so I'm not um, <laughs> saying that this is a, a kind of a radical altering of our, our order, but it's certainly different from 1960. It feels pretty bad. Dick Vitale tweeted Black Lives Matter this morning. <laughs> Well, <laughs> like I some I mean, I, I know it's it's still we have so much work to do, but there's a yeah. part of me that's like something has changed. And I want to yeah. I feel a little defensive for not mentioning the videos in my theory, but I, I believe the protests were very, very important that they that without the protests, the videos wouldn't have done the trick. That's right. Because I knew people who saw those videos, those earlier videos, and would still look you in the eye and say something like, you know, he was no angel, or we didn't see what happened before that, or you don't know his history, or whatever. They would see those things and still find a way to not see them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, I mean, that, that was, you know, that was the 1960s, right? It's mm-hmm. like there are a bunch of folks who are not bad people in the greater scheme of things, but who can sit there in the non-South and comfortably live their lives without having to feel like there's any, uh, you know, risk to their moral standing or their, um, you know, place in heaven to allow a class of people who are their fellow citizens to be treated as uh, second-class citizens. This gets us around to a question that I, I really have to ask, which is some people have been taking this research of yours that just came out, again, very mm-hmm. fortuitous timing for you, and saying this proves that the amount of violence that has happened is going to undo whatever gains might yeah. be made. And Trump is going to win. You guys have handed Trump the election. Hope you're happy, something or other. Yeah. But you don't yeah. think that's the case, necessarily. Yeah. So this is something I've been thinking about a lot, too. And, the you know, I think there are several layers to this. So let me let me kind of start with the simplest layer, which is... I'm looking at protest movements, nonviolent, violent protest movements, and then you know, between 1960 and 1972, very different moment in America, right? As we've discussed, America's more liberal on racial equality now. Media, I think, is smarter about these discussions. Um, you know, still a lot of work to make but on both fronts. There's also people but, of color in the media, not so right, right, that, that right, matters right, a lot. Right, so, yeah, right. So, so there's just, there's just the conversation is different, um, and even people who aren't people of color. Like I was watching, you know, um, Chris Cuomo talk about uh, this was uh, over the weekend. There was, you know, I don't know, Starbucks getting vandalized, and he was going out of his way to say, like, look, that's not just black people. There's a, you know, there's like a really multiracial group of people there, and and you know, we don't even know what the range of motivations. Some of those kids are just like thrill seekers, and some of them might be anarchists, and some of them might be there for racial justice, but adding a layer of complexity, even as he was just doing color commentary over, you know, footage that um, may itself emphasize the crime script, not the right script. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the media is savvier. Um, and so they're just a bunch of things, whether it's, uh, you know, the voting block having more attention to racial equality, the media being presenting a slightly more complicated story that's, that, that, that mean the past is not necessarily prologue. Um, 
So that that's one important thing. There's a second layer to how my research is being kind of has entered the public conversation. And to be clear, it's been, you know, I, I've been working on this for 15 years. <laughs> it's been such a struggle to get it published. And then suddenly to have it like become um, in some ways like one of the touchstones in a national conversation was just head spinning. So I'm grateful for that, though, of course, it's 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 in a in a in a you know, a horrible context. And so I, I, I wish it weren't so relevant in some ways. Um, and, um, and, and what I realize, and, and, and this is something, you know, I'm still working through myself is that part of they're kind of two. So my paper is in many ways, a discussion of like differential effects of nonviolent and violent tactics. And what's, um, complicated is that if you look at the 1960s, right? If you, I, I've just been rereading Letter from a Birmingham Jail, right? There are white moderates, uh, you know, people who are religious leaders in Birmingham who are saying, we don't think you're protesting in the right way. And King says in response, you know, I, 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 I am, I note that you spend a lot more time on how we are protesting and not uh, much time on the reason we protest, right? And we don't want to engage in a kind of simple social analysis that focuses only on effects and not on the causes, not on the underlying reason that people are protesting. And my work enters that conversation in a way that I hadn't uh, fully, you know, understood until it kind of, you know, I, I've just been you know, a guy sitting in front of a laptop, uh, you know, working in, in kind of uh, isolation like a monk. Um, and now suddenly I'm part of this broader national uh, discussion. And I think there's a, there, there are kind of two schools that have picked up on this in ways that were not part of my, uh, you know, that's not my intention. So one is people who are more right of center, are engaging in a conversation about let's talk about the appropriate way to protest. And here's this research that suggests the appropriate way to protest is, you know, is nonviolent. And, you know, I go to lengths in the paper to say violence may be legitimate. Violence may be appropriate, but I just find it's, it's not as strategic. But, but the more important thing is that what King is saying is, you know, let us not take our eye off the ball of the underlying injustice. And so for me, it's been a corrective to kind of say, you know, what is this about? Ultimately, this is not about nonviolent or violent tactics. This is about George Floyd fighting for his life, right? And that that's the root of this. And we need to kind of keep getting centered on what is the underlying injustice? What are the decades of, uh, you know, police killing and uh, excess indiscriminate use of force uh, by police against black people? Like, that's the heart of this. And if we're talking too much about tactics, we're, we're, we're pulling our eye away from the core injustice, right? So I have to be careful that my work isn't a kind of rhetorical shift away from injustice into tactics. Um, and that's something I have to keep working on. Um, at the same time, I think there's a, a kind of a liberal, um, and this speaks to what you were, uh, you, you were alluding to earlier about, you know, a, a sense of, well, maybe the violence, the arson, um, those kinds of uh, tactics are legitimate and, uh, you know, help to raise attention to the issue and reflect people's deep underlying anger. And, and I think it's important there as well to appreciate that if the core of this protest effort, uh, of the core of these movements, is a, a, a focus on justice, 
then, you know, that, 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 uh, to pick an easy example, the white anarchist kid who spray paints BLM on a building who might think he is behaving as an ally is in fact shifting our focus away again because we're talking about a different kind of, uh, you know, where it pulls us to the discussion about violence or vandalism versus justice. Um, and so I think in some ways, both the uh, violent actors and the right of center folks who don't want to sit with the injustice, both are pulling us away. They're, they're, they're preventing both. They both are preventing us from keeping our eyes on the prize. And that to me has to be the thing both, you know, that I keep coming back to in my work and I hope other people can see um, as, as one possible um, way in which we understand the power of nonviolence is it keeps our eye on the prize of that injustice. Omar, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. And that's it for the show. You may be able to tell that I have changed my location. I'm now in downtown Minneapolis, sitting on a planter on a street corner. I've thought a lot about what it is I might say at the end of this episode. And then I realized I don't really have much to add. So, instead of saying more, I'm just going to sit here for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. I invite you to join me.